Welcome back to another episode of Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. February is shaping up to be an exciting month for the podcast. I have tremendous guests lined up. I think you're going to really enjoy not only hearing about their current comic book work, but other work that they have done in the past and other things they are working on in the present. And with all these podcasts, I think you're going to learn a lot. So I'm really looking forward to sharing these with you. Up today, my guest is Cynthia Von Bueller. She is the writer and artist of The Girl Who Handcuffed Houdini, a miniseries being published by Titan Comics and Hard Case Crime, with its third issue coming soon. I was really excited about doing this interview. Everything that Cynthia is involved in. This comic book, I read it, I loved it. I wanted to reach out right away and interview her. She is primarily an artist, but she has drawn comic books before. This is her first written and drawn comic book. Cynthia's creation, Minky Woodcock, is an amateur sleuth. And there's a bit of Cynthia in Minky herself because Cynthia, too, is an amateur sleuth and has done some work of her own. And we're going to talk about that. However, Cynthia is primarily an artist, and this is not her first comic book, but this is the first one that she has written and drawn herself. Cynthia also creates immersive theater productions, and we're going to talk about that, too. In addition to her theater productions, Cynthia has been on television, the show Oddities, and her artists appeared on the show Law & Order SVU, and we're going to talk about in what capacity. So I have a lot to cover in a limited amount of time, so let's get to it. My interview with Cynthia Von Bueller, the girl who handcuffed Houdini, here now on Creator Talks. Cynthia, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. Good to be here. I read the first issue. Well, actually, I started to read the first issue, got halfway through, and I'm like, I got to contact her. I got to talk to her about this book. And the more I dug in and researched the depth and breadth of your work, the more fascinated I was. So there's a lot to cover, and I know we can't cover it all. But let's start with the comic, Minky Woodcock, The Girl Who Handcuffed Houdini. Now, the foundation for the story is based on actual historical events that Minky Woodcock encounters while she's trying to unravel a mystery surrounding the death of Harry Houdini, who died back on October 31st, 1926. And it's based upon things that actually happened where he ran to a couple of students from McGill University, and he didn't just die of appendicitis. People have different opinions on what actually happened. I'm giving, I'm putting all the facts out there and people can make their own assumptions. But for the most part, everything that happens within the story, although Minky isn't a real character, all of the facts are actually accurate. And I'm not sure if you looked at the website, but on my website, which is MinkyWoodcock.com, there's, there's a section called Evidence where I have actual autopsy reports and letters and telegrams and newspaper clippings, and which you know documents my research. I've read some of it, but I haven't had a chance to dig into all of it yet. I'm adding it as I go, you know, <laughs> because I'm I'm working on the book. I mean, the story I wrote a year ago, I finished it a year ago, but now I'm drawing the series. And so when I think, oh, I'm adding this, I should add this piece of evidence to just document this fact. Well, I'm glad you're putting it all out there so people get a, an idea of what may have happened, because I think some people believe that Houdini drowned during his Chinese water torture because that's what happened to Tony Curtis in the movie back in the 50s. (laughs) Right. I think that they just wanted to make, which is which Houdini would be rolling over in his grave if he had seen that because he would not want to be remembered that he died doing one of his tricks. They liked the idea of that, like that it was dramatic. But 
the real death is actually quite dramatic too and, and very interesting once you start looking into all of the little details. Yeah, I mean, from what I read, I mean, he was tough as nails. He wanted to go on with the show. He wouldn't listen to people. It's like, you should see a doctor. No, 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 I'm, I'm fine. He was tough as nails, but there was also some financial reasons for that. His manager had signed a contract saying that if he canceled the show, he would have to pay $1,000, which at that time was a lot of money. So he had some financial reasons too, which is also something I uncovered in my, in my research. Now, Minky Woodcock is the fictitious character that you came up with. She's stepping into her father's shoes as a detective. And she is a rabbit-loving detective. So how much of your own personality did you inject into Minky? <laughs> That's a good question. I've been using this name Minky Woodcock for a long time. It's sort of this pseudonym for myself. It's this other character. So she's partially me or part of me. I also have a model who I'm drawing from. And her name is Pearl Staley. She's a burlesque performer. And I put on theater in New York City, and she's been in many of my shows. And I just found her to be sort of a comic book character. Like she's just really beautiful. She's really spunky. And so it's a little bit her, especially visually, because she's my model. So she adds a lot to it. So it's sort of a combination of the both of us. And I'd say I'm also a little bit of Marjorie, you know, Marjorie, the spiritualist. I mean, I actually look more like Marjorie because I've got the long, dark hair. So, you know, you put your pieces of yourself in all of the characters. I think that you just can't help that when you're working on, on a comic book. And some other characters that make an appearance in this book besides Harry Houdini is Sir Conan Arthur Doyle. He was a known spiritualist, and Houdini was a known skeptic. And the two of them actually did meet. They did. And they were friends for a while. Harry Houdini, he had lost his mother, and he was devastated over the loss of his mother, and he wanted to contact her. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's wife was a spiritualist who did what's called automatic writing, where she would write as she's going into a trance, she would write and channel the spirit of another person who had died. So they offered to do this for Harry so he could talk to his mother. And when that happened, first she started it with a cross on the paper. And Harry Houdini's mother was Jewish. She would never have written a Christian cross. And then Harry Houdini's mother couldn't read and write, so it was a little bit, he didn't believe it. He didn't say anything at first, but then he sort of mulled it over later and felt really, really angry that they had taken advantage of him and taken advantage of his love of his mother. And then this sort of led to him wanting to debunk spiritualism in general because he felt as if it was preying upon people who had lost a loved one. And quite frequently, that was for money. Like, you know, they, you, maybe not in his case, they did it as a, as a favor or whatever. But, in, you know, many people were doing this to make money off people's, people's sadness and loss. And of course, he was making money off of his illusions, but he made it clear, these are illusions. This is a trick. He wasn't revealing how he did it, but he wasn't trying to dupe people into thinking that it was something other than what it was, that he was very good at creating these illusions and performing these tricks. Exactly. But Sir Arthur Conan Doyle didn't believe him. He thought he was just saying that. And he really thought that Houdini was a spiritualist. And part of the reason why he didn't like spiritualism was because he was, you know, he was the greatest spiritualist ever. And, <laughs> and so he, you know, he, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wouldn't believe Houdini when he said going through the brick wall, that was, which is one of Houdini's tricks. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle really believed it was true, that he really saw it with his own eyes and that um, he just wouldn't believe Houdini. He thought he was lying. What would you say you are? Are you a skeptic, a spiritualist, or somewhere in between? <laughs> wow, that's a good question. I am a skeptic. 
in all things, I like to keep an open mind. You know, when it comes to religion or spiritualism or anything, I always like to keep an open mind. So I'm not, let's say with religion, I'm not an atheist. I'm not necessarily a believer, but I'm not a non-believer. I just like to keep an open mind to anything. And because unless you know it's proven for a fact it's not true, then you're being just as bad as a believer <laughs> if you don't believe completely. If you believe completely, you don't believe because you just have to, you know, it would be, have to be proven to me. And I think that with Houdini, he was actually proving these things as being false. So I guess in that case, if proven to me and shown to me with my own eyes, I would say I'm a skeptic, but I always like to keep my mind open to all things. Well, one thing I'm a believer in is the work of this book, the art, the story. It's fantastic. The art that you're producing looks very much like art from the 20s, just in the way it looks in terms of the dimensionality, the panel layouts, and the likenesses are very, Thank very good. Thank you so much. Sir Arthur Coda Doyle is actually my model, one of my actors. Uh, Lord Cat. He plays that role and kind of looks like him, but not quite. We decided we didn't want it to look exactly like him because of um, the family doesn't really, you know, it's not necessarily um, showing him in the greatest light. So that was one person who we sort of changed a little bit. But I'm using many models. Uh, many of my actors pose for me, which has been really fun to use my use my actors and and I have all these models. I have all these, because I put on plays that take place in the 20s, I have all this clothing, my home. I use my own home. I have a townhouse in Manhattan. and It's in all of the scenes. So when we did the release party, we did it there. And everybody was, all the actors were there dressed up and they were in the actual set. So it was really fun. And we put on a seance and I'm having a great time doing that. The 20s is an era I really know and love. Yeah, I love that period, 20s and 30s and even the 40s. People know I'm a sucker for that. So any books or comics that go back to that, I love it. I'm already buying in right away. Oh, now, that's great. I'm glad. <laughs> and also it's time when feminism started to show its head in the world. You know, like obviously there's a lot of sexism going on and there still is, but you know, women's dresses were different. So women were starting to do more things and, and to, to buck the system. And so Minky is definitely a feminist. You know, she wants to work in a man's world. And that's another thing I like about the 1920s because of it was things were changing. You wrote the story about a year ago and now you're working on the art, but you're working very close to the deadline for each issue. How are you keeping up? It's hard. <laughs> this is my, I mean, I, I actually, I illustrated a graphic novel once before called Evelyn Evelyn with Amanda Palmer and Jason Webley. That was a, more of a book. I've illustrated many books, children's books, and I've been an illustrator for many, many years. But this is the first time I've done something where, you know, I'm working on it as the deadline is looming over my head. So it's a challenge, but I really enjoy living in this world. And when you're drawing it, you really are living in the world. I'm living more in the Minky's world right now than my own. Did you reach out to the publisher about doing the book? Or did they come to you and say, you're the right pick for this book? Oh, that's interesting. There are two publishers. There's Hard Case Crime. And they publish these beautiful sort of pulpy crime novels. They've had some very well-known people write some of their stories. And it's just really beautiful uh, publisher. And Charles R. Dye, he runs that company. And now he's releasing his books through a partnership with Titan, Titan Comics in there in the UK. And so I knew Charles, my husband used to work for him many, many years ago at an internet company. And so I had been introduced to him many years ago, and we kind of became friendly. He came to some of my plays. And I always knew he was really interested in crime and mystery. And he was interested in what I was doing. 
but I'm not a novelist. I'm definitely more of an artist, you know, who writes in conjunction with pictures. So there was really no place for me in, you know, in his publishing firm until he started doing this comic book series with Titan Comics. And then we started talking and he said, do you have any ideas? And I said, well, I have many ideas because I've been putting out these plays and any one of them could be a comic series. And I told him that I liked the idea of having this sort of a female private investigator. And I told him I had the story I was working on about Houdini because the story is also going to be a play, which will be um, released next year. I also wrote it as a screenplay for a TV show. So originally what he saw and chose to make into a comic was a screenplay for a TV show. Now you are joining a very exclusive and small group of very good writers and artists doing very well at it, I think. And speaking of writers, you're welcome. And speaking of writers and artists, you have a writer artist doing the cover for issue number four, Dean Haspel. I do. So he's a friend of mine. He's been a friend of mine for a while and he's been doing comics for ages. And I had posted a picture Posted pictures from the comic and also David Mack, who's an amazing, amazing artist and writer as well. And Dean said, what, well, what about me? Don't you want me to do one? And I said, well, yeah, do you want to do one? And then so, you know, and then some of my other friends said, hey, I want to do one. So it, I was excited to have Dean do one. It's, you know, he's, he's been doing this a very long time and I really admire his work and his work ethic. He's always been complaining about how hard it is, but it's really, you know, and, and, and he's right. It's, not the easiest um the deadlines are hard he's a great guy he's been a guest on the show and i see him at comms in fact he was the first person that i wrote an interview about that got published in the local newspaper that was my first published story was dean coming to my area so yeah so um i feel like i owe him a lot (laughs) he's also doing theater now he started doing theater so i've been doing theater for a long time and now it's he's doing theater as well so it's kind of we're, we're, I guess we're onto something, mixing theater with comics, and that's maybe the next big thing. Well, you mentioned <laughs> you, know, you mentioned Evelyn, Evelyn, and you also did another book. It was through a Kickstarter, Speakeasy Dollhouse: The Bloody Beginning. Tell me about Speakeasy Dollhouse and the Kickstarter. So I've been actually writing and illustrating children's books. After I illustrated Evelyn, Evelyn, I thought, ooh, I would, I have some stories that I think would make great graphic novels for adults, and one of them is about my grandfather who was mysteriously murdered during prohibition or right after prohibition ended. He was a bootlegger in New York city and he was mysteriously murdered in 1935. And my mother was born the day he died and nobody ever spoke of it. Nobody ever talked about why he died, what happened. Um, My grandmother never spoke of him really again after that. And it was a mystery in the family. And we kind of thought it must have had something to do with the mafia. Maybe he was in the mafia um, and maybe that's why they weren't talking about it. And then I started researching it and I found uh, like an amazing article in, I believe it was the New York Post. And I went to the public library and I found this article and everything sort of started to become clear. And then I thought, oh, this would be a great graphic novel. And because I had illustrated, I had been illustrating children's books with dollhouse sets and I love dollhouse sets. I just think they're so fantastic. I decided to sort of illustrate this graphic novel with dollhouse sets. It was a limited edition. We actually did a second printing of it, but that book was not the actual story. That book was a precursor to the story, and I'm still working on the story, and I need to get back to that. You know, you can't buy it anymore. It just sort of came out for the Kickstarter, and then we made another one, and everybody was coming to the play, 
could receive a copy of it, but it's out of print now. And it's more of a memoir about my wanting to look into the story. Well, I find it fascinating because the whole process was developed by Frances Glessner Lee in the 30s and 40s. And she made these things called nutshells. You I mean, you wrote about this and how she used that for her own little bit of sleuthing. And you, you followed suit with that. She's a fascinating woman. She's just wonderful. And like Mickey, she wanted to be in a male world. She wanted to be a forensic scientist. She want, you know, but she was, she was a woman in a time when it wasn't, you know, women weren't working in that field. And she started helping them by making dollhouse sets of crimes that they could use to teach detectives on how to solve the crimes. So she would create these dollhouse sets that the detectives would look at and they would have to try to figure out what happened and it would help them learn how to figure out crimes. And the dollhouse sets are just gorgeous. They're beautiful. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to sorry, I'd already been working with dollhouse sets and this is a way where I could do one in an adult, you know, adult subject matter. So I made a dollhouse of a speakeasy of, you know, my grandfather's speakeasy and made dolls, my grandmother and him and all of the characters. And then I sort of posed them. They were on view at the actual show where people could see them in a little, in a room, a secret room you could go into and that you could see the dollhouse sets and I still have it. As you did this research about the murder, you found out that certain things your relatives recalled about the case were inaccurate. This based on how you position things in the room and the layout, you found out certain things weren't quite passed down correctly. But I knew he had been shot in Manhattan and my mother said, oh, he was shot in an apartment. And it turned out that no, he was not shot in an apartment. He was shot on the street. And in the apartment, he was taking off his coat. If you're in an apartment and you're taking off your coat, you, that could be just any reason why, okay, I'm taking off my coat. I just entered the apartment. But if you're taking off your coat and it's March, and you're outside, it's cold. So you're probably taking off your coat to have a fight. That's what we discovered. Things like that became apparent. And then as we did the play, I've been doing the play for, I don't know, since 2011, on and off. We were doing it consistently for a while in an actual speakeasy in Manhattan. Then we lost that venue. And so we've done it in a few different other speakeasies. Every once in a while, we do the play again, and probably we'll be starting again soon. And I keep learning things as I go. I've actually had people come to the play who were relatives who said, oh, I am a relative of the person who murdered your father. And, and this is a fact that you should probably know. I keep learning more and more about it, you know, digging deeper. I think I know what happened now. You know, I'll never know for sure, but I know pretty well what happened. That's amazing that you're still piecing this together and you're getting new information as you go along. It's, it's evolving and developing. It's a living investigation. Yeah, I, that's one thing I love about these plays that I do and these investigations. There's, that's how they are. So I could put out this comic about Houdini and then somebody could come to me and say, hey, I have some more information for you. You know, you keep filling in the blanks and that's amazing. And I find that really interesting. I actually love that these are real facts because someone might read this or they might read the story about my grandfather and say, wow, that's bizarre. I mean, I did another play about the murder of Abraham Lincoln by John Wilkes Booth and his brother was Edwin Booth. And we did it in Edwin Booth's actual mansion on Gramercy Park in New York. And we did it sort of as a ghost story because it's not the 20s. We did it, we based it in the 20s, but it was a ghost story. Some of the facts are just incredible that you don't believe they're, they're absolutely can't be true. Like you wouldn't think that Edwin Booth had saved President Lincoln's son from death where he fell into a train between the train tracks and he pulled him out. And you wouldn't know that John Wilkes Booth was engaged to this woman who 
Abraham Lincoln's son was having an affair with behind John Wilkes's back. I mean, you, there, there's all these crazy facts, you know, like that then, then there's a mummy of John Wilkes Booth, mummy of him after he died and supposedly he didn't really die and that he lived on for many, many years. So there's all these crazy facts with all of these stories. The same with the Houdini, you know, like that he's given this experimental serum and my grandfather, the fact that my grandfather died the day my mother was born like these are just weird stories and so when you read them you think is this true and then you go and you google it on uh, you know you go and you go onto the internet and find out wow wow this is really true his wife did get double indemnity when he died things like that like you know you find out wow it's true these are the best stories to me the ones that have some basis in fact that's based on fact and you find out more you can dig into it that's why i enjoyed it so much i could dig into it further learning more about houdini the kind of person he was and, you know, we should all take a, a lesson from all of this about facts getting changed over time because just being in family conversations, sometimes I'll, you know, have one person say, oh, this is what happened back in the 50s. And then someone else, they'll say, that's not what happened. That's not what you did. You you did this. So it's good to cross-check things <laughs> yeah. and, and document this stuff while you can. In fact, it's really scary that right now with modern media and recordings and video, things get spun and changed Anyway, people would say, oh, forget the facts. Let's just say this instead and keep saying it. You know, it's, it's crazy. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Like on Facebook, people will read it and then they'll believe that it's real and then it just keeps getting propagated. That's true. And some of these stories that's happened, like, you know, especially with something like my John Wilkes Booth story, people believe a certain history when it might not actually be real. If you go back and you start researching these things, you discover, wow, this is not what happened. The same thing with Houdini. You know, he didn't die in the in the water water torture cell just because you saw a film. You know, and you go back and you you find out more. That one of the biggest things that in my book is the fact that the man who punched him was a spiritualist, and the spiritualist they wanted him dead. So I think that's pretty curious. You know, the fact that this man, and he punched him pretty hard. You know, he was definitely trying to hurt him. Well, we should all be healthy skeptics to a degree, and we should all investigate things when we can. Dig a little deeper and get into the facts. Don't just accept what you see on the internet. Right. Healthy skeptics with a big open mind. Yes. <laughs> now, you mentioned your theater productions, and you have one coming up in February, February 23rd, the Illuminati Ball. And this is an immersive experience. This is based, again, on an actual event that occurred in 1972, a surrealist ball hosted by the Baron and Baroness de Rothschild in France, with such luminaries there as Salvador Dali himself, I believe he was like the guest of honor, and Audrey Hepburn. This is based on that event. You're having your own immersive theater experience, and it's, my understanding is you have like a two-to-one actor-guest ratio, so there'll be a guide for the guest who buys tickets that evening. They'll have someone to shepherd them through the entire show, and they'll be involved in the show. This is a little bit different. So there's two different versions of this show. All of my shows, I should mention, are immersive, which means people interact, the audience and the the actor, sometimes you can't tell what the difference is and that they're all on the same plane going through some different rooms and an environment. So, um, you know, that's something called immersive theater, which has become pretty hot in big cities like New York. I'm not sure if it's, they have that where you live yet. It's quite beautiful because you're really part of the show. So you really are experiencing it right there with the actor. And so I do this show in the summers at my country house and we bring people in a limousine bus to the house. And that show is sort of a one-on-one. -on -one. We have just as many, we only have 40 people 
And then we have about 25 to 30 actors. So it's really very personal. And there's a whole storyline behind it that I can't really go into because it's a surprise. (laughs) But it is based on the Rothschild ball in the 70s. And so I started in October, I decided I wanted to do a much bigger one in New York City. I did one at this gorgeous old bank, massive, gorgeous bank that's been amazingly decorated. Of course, we add to that as well. And we had it for a thousand people. So that's quite a large show for a thousand people, but it is an immersive show. So people come in and they wander through rooms. There's stage show as well, but then they're wandering through the rooms and having these experiences. So it might not be one-on-one for that show because there's so many people, but we hope that everybody gets at least gets some kind of experience in a one-on-one fashion. Okay. Now, is there a VIP level for that show? There is. There is a VIP level. We already sold out for that. We tend to sell out. The VIPs are part of the inner circle initiation. Now, this, I must say, this is not a crime investigation. This is just something different. This is just something that one of my dancers sent me the pictures from that party in the 70s, and they were just so over-the-top incredible. Like, you know, It was a surrealist ball, but the Baroness was wearing this big stag head mask with diamond tears. And it was just like all these crazy costumes. And it was just really, really intense. And she said, we should do a party like this. <laughs> we should do a show like this. And I thought, oh, this is a great idea. But I wanted to do, I really love animals. So there's definitely like an underlying story about animals woven through this. You know, because when I saw the, the stag head mask with tears that the Baroness was wearing, it made me think of the sadness of animals. So I have this whole underlying story that is in it. I'm actually working on that as a comic book as well. Now, how long have you been doing the immersive theater, both the smaller at your home and then the larger one at the bank? I've done a few different shows. The one about my grandfather is called The Bloody Beginning, Speakeasy Dollhouse, The Bloody Beginning. I did that one for about five years, and then I still do it once in a while in different locations. And I guess I've been doing it since 2011, since I did that first Kickstarter. The Kickstarter started it. It was supposed to be a one-night event. And then it was so popular that it went for five years. It went on for five years, and we're still doing it. I've always been doing performance art my whole life. I've been kind of involved in theatrical, you know, whether it be with a band or especially also incorporating the audience into the show has been something that I've been doing for a long time. And I'm a painter and a sculptor and I make these sculptures that are interactive as well. Some of them have robotics, some of them have like coin op or animals that kind of are incorporated into them that you interact with. So it's just something that I've been doing and I love mixing media. Like I love having, you know, something be a book and then also a show and also a painting and also uh, all kinds of whatever I can add to it. You know, whatever art I can bring together into one place is just what I like to do. Now, you mentioned your love of animals, and I don't want to understate that because you have your own private animal sanctuary. (laughs) You could call it that. It's not officially a sanctuary yet. (laughs) I need to get sanctuary status. Okay. But I do have seven acres of land in a pretty hidden place, and I have a lot of animals that I've rescued, and it's something that I really care about very deeply. That is another thing that really made me love Houdini is that Houdini and Bess also really loved animals. And I've incorporated that into the story too. It's true that they called all of, they named all of their animals after human type names. You know, they did have a parrot named Pat. <laughs> and so I did add that to the story. And I can't do a story without having animals in it. It's just part of what makes me tick. And I have a pet pig. I actually have two pet pigs. Both of them are rescues. I raise homing pigeons. And I, well, actually, they weren't homing pigeons. I taught them to home, and they were all 
rescues, you know, whether they were found in, they, they may have been found in New York City as babies or hit by a car, or some of them came from a slaughterhouse. And I have a dog that bites people that used to live in a wild dog pack in New York. And I have many cats. I've had a three-legged skunk and all kinds of animals. When did this all begin, and what was the first animal to find sanctuary? It all began when I was a child, and my parents, they said, I was behind in math, and they said, if you learn your multiplication tables, we'll get you a pet. And so I did. I was excited, and they gave me a skunk. (laughs) So that kind of started me on my path to unusual animals. I'm I'm all about unconditional love, giving love to animals who may not be giving you love back or who need your help, and they may not necessarily appreciate it. But that doesn't matter to me. It's more about I love animals so much and I just want to help them. And frequently they do come to love you very much. That started it. And your other question was? And the first animal to find sanctuary. Oh, that's a good question. Um... In college, I actually found a cat named Cleo in a parking lot. And that was the first cat that I, that was my first pet after the skunk. My own pet was this cat that I found in a parking lot. But when I lived in Boston, I lived in this neighborhood called Alston, which where a lot of students lived, students who go to Boston University and Boston College live in this neighborhood. And my first husband and I, we bought a Victorian house there. It was really ramshackle, rundown. But I fixed it up and I painted it purple and it was this crazy art house where we had all these parties. But the problem with this neighborhood was the students would move in and then they would go home in the summer and they would just let their cats free. So the cats would just be dumped there. And then the cats would just sort of end up on my porch. So at one point I had, I think, 22 cats and some of the cats were feral and the cats were all, you know, that's really what got me started with rescue was when I lived there and I started helping cats. And I actually wrote a children's book about it, which is called The Cat Who Wouldn't Come Inside. And that was published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. See, all your work ties together. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When you're an artist, you make art about what you know, what you you know, your life, right? Right. Now, all of your pets, you still have them that you've ever had, right? Well, I've had many die. Over the years, many have died. I've had so many cats. I have all of my pet ashes. So every time a pet dies, I have them cremated and I put them in urns and I have this big whole mantelpiece of urns. And when I die, I want them all buried with me. But I still have many animals here and I'm constantly trying to help animals. And people call me and say, oh, I found a seagull. What can I do? And, oh, I actually got licensed. I'm a licensed rehabber now. I can actually, I'm legally able to help animals, wildlife and raccoons and seagulls and whatever else. Find anything that crosses my path, if I see an animal in trouble, I'll help it. Well, congratulations on the license. And I can see why people go to you because <laughs> the word gets around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's not just animals. It's also, if someone needs help, I, I might as well do my best to help them. You know, it's funny. Um, my wife had a cat before me, um, BC before mm-hmm. Chris. And the cat became part of the family. <laughs> I made it up yeah. on the fly. The cat became part of yeah. the family. And then she had her for years, and then she passed away. And I mentioned this on the show before, but it ties into what you've done. And she had the cat cremated, and she's like, look, I found this urn on Amazon, and it was of a cat, an Egyptian cat. I'm like, oh, do that. you got to do it. So we still have the cat in the Egyptian cat urn on the Aww, mantle. Yeah. <laughs> it looks nice. And so she's always there standing guard. It does. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's, 
I don't believe it's there anymore, but yeah. it's just, I don't know, it's, it's them. It's their... It's a nice memorial for them. What's left of them, yeah. When you see it, too, it reminds you of its life and your memories of it, right? Yeah, yeah. I looked at the urn the other day and said, you know, she's really starting to listen to me now. Panda, stay. 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 See? She's listening to me now. Wait, who's Panda? <laughs> that's the cat. <laughs> oh, wait, that's my new pig rescue's name is Get Panda. Get out of here, really? Yeah, Panda the Pig. That's my, I have Persephone, who is, oh, per- Persephone is an actress in the Illuminati Ball, the one that I do, the smaller one. Persephone, I taught her to be a learned pig, which is something they used to have in Europe in olden days. They had these things called the learned pigs where they would do tricks and they'd be in town centers and the pigs would, you know, have you ever heard of that, the learned pig? No, I haven't. Okay, it's, it's, it's kind of strange. You can look it up on, on the internet, but I found this book from the 1800s and in it it gives it was instruction book on how to make your pig a learned pig so when i adopted nini uh, her name is persephone but we call her nini for short i taught her i followed the instructions in this pamphlet <laughs> that i from the like 1800s and i made her into a learned pig i could lay cards out on the floor and i can say nini bring me the ace of spades and she will pick it up with her mouth and bring it to me wow and um yeah, and I can actually make her spell things. Like, we can ask her a question, like fortune-telling, like, or, you know, Nini, what time is it? And she will pick up the cards with the numbers that are the time that it is at that. Things like that. So That's I taught incredible. her how to do that. <laughs> wow. So I have a learned pig. Yeah. Isn't that cool? <laughs> That's really cool. I need to do a book about her someday. She's amazing. Pigs are extremely smart. That's what I've heard, and now I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to touch briefly on your TV appearances. Even your art has appeared on TV. You had some of your art, a painting, appear on Law & Order SVU. It was (laughs) the art of a serial killer. And I guess you can take that as a compliment, (laughs) right? (laughs) I did. That's really, that's a funny question. Yes, when I first moved from Boston to New York City, I was living in this big industrial loft in the meatpacking district. And frequently, they would want to rent it for a shoot just because it was a big open space. So Law and Order contacted me about you know using the space, and then when they came in, my paintings were all over. I have these sort of these life-size sculptures. There's one of the self-portrait of me with arrows in it that's on fire that like glows, and it's like, like there's just bizarre. You know, I have one that has <laughs> live rats lived in, and then the torso is sort of clear, and in it are pipes and the rats. I taught them to climb the pipes, and you could feed them through this sort of tracheotomy hole in the neck they're just strange paintings and, you know some of them I had the birds in my loft flying free so I had some with the birds would go and perch in the painting and that would change the meaning anyway they come to my loft in order to do this you know they're going to be shooting and then the director sees my art and said oh my god this would be the great as the art of the serial killer <laughs> and they were actually fighting over it that I think it was the director and the producer or something I don't know they were fighting over the fact should the serial killer kill the person in the same position as my painting, one of my paintings. And they actually didn't do that. They ended up having it be his art studio where they're walking through it, you know, and I actually saw the episode briefly once and it was so dark, you know, they had a flashlight and they're shining the flashlight on the art and things like that. So yeah, that was pretty. Oh, here's an interesting story about that. So Ice-T is in that, right? The rapper and actor Ice-T. So he's sitting there in my bedroom to go on for his scene and my ex-boyfriend was there at the time, and he said to him, like, wow, it would be weird to date that girl. Like, her art's so strange. Like, it would be weird to date her. And, and my ex-boyfriend said, yep, 
I dated her. It was weird. But it's so funny that Ice-T, this rapper and former like drug dealer saying that I would be weird to date. Speaking of weird, you wound up on the TV show Oddities on the Discovery Channel. I used to love that show. I've probably seen you on it. It's been a while since you were on it, but I've probably seen the episode. I was on a couple times. They're really interesting, and I love antiques, and you know, I love what they sell in their shop, and I love what this show is all about. And I'm friends with Edgar Oliver. He had a role in The Bloody Beginning for a long time. He played The Undertaker. Do you know Edgar Oliver from that show, too? He was also another one of their regulars. It's been a while since I've seen it, so I'd probably recognize him if I saw him. He's an interesting guy, and they did a whole show about Speakeasy Dollhouse and about they came to it, and they were helping me find a gurney for it because I was looking for props. It was right in the very beginning, and I was looking for um, different props, and one of the things I needed was an antique gurney, and they actually found one for me and helped me find one, and we used it in the show for years, and we still have it. So, and then they had a holiday special and I was on their holiday special. <laughs> what was the whole reality TV experience like for you? I don't know if that's a typical reality TV show because it's, it's actually real, you know, like they are antique sellers and they sell odd things and it was interesting. It was just fun. It was like, we were, it's more like people getting together who care about something and just hanging out. And then all of a sudden they're shooting cameras, you know, the different artists and people who, you know, like, Oh, look at this thing I found. Oh, wow. Look at that great wax mannequin that you have over there you know so it was just we it was unusual and and it it wasn't I I don't think it's a typical reality tv show because a lot of reality tv shows are really staged and planned out they really were finding me a prop it wasn't just made up it was always a fascinating show because I always learned so much watching it and they were odd things that I just didn't know anything about so it was always interesting Uh, I miss that yeah, me too. It, it was it was good. I actually haven't seen them in a little while, but I still have we're friends on Facebook and I see them around, but they're they're wonderful. So now I have some questions for you that I ask all my guests. And the first is, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? I really do like spending time with my animals, helping them and feeding them and cutting their trimming knees, hooves and things like that when I have time. But um, I like to swim in my lake. I love that very much. I love to read. I love to spend time with my husband. All of these things are things that I haven't been able to do in a really, really long time because I'm working on a comic book. (laughs) So, you know, like I really miss doing those things. (laughs) Now, if you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only have one book with you, what would that book be? Mm, That's interesting. I feel like the book that I would want on a deserted island would be completely different than a book I would want if I'm around people. So I just reread Vanity Fair by Thackeray. I love that book, but it's all about human nature and people and how evil people are. (laughs) So if I was on a desert island, I wouldn't need to read that. I feel like if I was on a desert island, I would want something that would help me with the animals and land that was there. I have to entertain people. Or things. So I feel like I was on a desert island. I would find the living creatures around me to entertain and make their lives better. So whatever book I would want would be something that would teach me or help me in doing that. It wouldn't be a book that I would want to read now. My favorite books from right now are all about, I love like classic British novels. And they're usually about things that teaching me about human nature because I'm surrounded by humans and I need to understand them. So if I was on a desert island, I would want a book about the marine life of <laughs> surrounding me, the monkeys that are in the trees and things like that. So something to help you commune with nature, not a cookbook. 
No, no. <laughs> uh, although a book about foraging for mushrooms and things <laughs> like that might be. I mean, I, am I, is this too? Um, I don't know. I'm not being very dreamy here. No, you know, that's I'm all right. No. Of, Everyone has a different answer. What would I choose? Oh, man. Well, see, people have asked me that question. The book I would have with me is the Tibetan Book of the Living and the Dying because it is kind of based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but it helps you cope with life and with dying. So I'm like, well, if I'm stuck on this island, and this could be it for me, I need something to help me get through it mentally. That's a really good point. Actually, one of my favorite books, which would be useful in that same way, would be um, The Conquest of Happiness by Bertrand Russell. Whenever I get depressed, I take that book out and reread it because it teaches you about getting out of your own head and your inner workings and focusing on what's out around you. That's really the key to happiness is just not being so inner and getting out of yourself. Therefore, I would be wanting to convene with the animals and help them and get outside of my own head. Because I would think if you're on a desert island, you might get pretty depressed, right? Right. <laughs> so The Conquest of Happiness, that would probably be my book by Bertrand Russell. So thank you for helping me. <laughs> no now you're off the island. This is just relaxing. What is your beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? Resting and relaxing. Hmm. For resting and relaxing, I really love whiskey sours. Like a really good whiskey sour made with egg white. Although I shouldn't have egg white because I'm trying to be vegan. But <laughs> but even just a good whiskey sour like is really relaxing to me. You know, nice cocktail, some red wine, some red, some Chianti maybe. What about you? I like a glass of red wine. I like a red blend. I like mm. a, a nice Merlot or Cabernet. Occasionally, I like to have a beer. Um, now, that's becoming more and more difficult as I get older because it shows up more because I tend to like the IPAs and the stouts. <laughs> so yeah. the, the, oh, red, right. the red wine's better for me. I know. I, I like a nice lager. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like them both. I just – I should have the wine more. You know, that's better for me overall. But yeah, that's what I enjoy to, to relax with when I'm reading either a book or a comic or watching something on television. Me and the missus like to mm -hmm. enjoy a glass of wine together. My grandmother just died recently and she was 106. Wow. And she said that the key to her longevity was wine and olive oil. Ah, okay. All right. Well, yeah. The Mediterranean diet, olive oil is a great thing to have. Absolutely. We use it a lot in you mm -hmm. know, salads and stuff in the cooking. Well, our cooking. My wife cooks. She's an excellent cook, but she does use a lot of olive oil. It brings more satiety. Um, you feel full. <laughs> it satisfies really? the hunger craving more. I think so because of the fats. It's the right kind of fats. And I put some of that on the salad and I feel like, okay, I feel like I've had a meal now. I put a few olives on there. I feel full. Yeah. Yeah. It really helps. Olive oil and wine. Definitely the way to go. Absolutely. <laughs> Now, let's, the comic's doing great, and Hardcase and Titan get together and say, we're making an action figure of you. Now, what would be your accessory as that action figure? I feel like they would probably make an action figure not of me, but of Minky, right? I always make it personal and say, it's you. What would be your accessory? But hey, let's, let's do both. If it was me and I was Minky, her little accessory would be her rabbit, of course. I mean, Minky should probably have a few things. I mean, she probably would have a gun, which I don't personally have. <laughs> um but you're so you're saying if it was me like what would i want as my accessory right yeah it might not be what minky has i mean if they were going to do an action figure of me i would definitely want to have lots of little animals around me they'd have to have a barn and you know <laughs> some pigs <laughs> <laughs> okay all right definitely some books i think minky would have books minky's very well read you know she's a smart cookie so she likes to read so definitely books are amazing and final question after you wrap up this run of Mickey Woodcock, please tell me you're going to do more. <laughs> There'll be another <laughs> run or another book like it. Yeah. 
sure what we're going to be at. I'm, I'm so under this looming deadline. <laughs> you know, I've got a, I'm finishing issue three right now, and it's going to be coming out in two weeks. So we're not really talking about it too much. I've spoken a little bit with my editor and publisher about, you know, what we could do next. There mm-hmm. definitely will be more. And we just have to figure out which, which one I'll focus on next. Whether we'll continue Minky with another, I have so many other ideas for her. So we could continue Minky if everybody loves Minky and they want to see more of her. She has many other cases she could continue on, or I could actually do something. I want to do something either way. I want to do something about my Illuminati story. So definitely there'll be more. I'm really enjoying it actually, even though it's really very hard and there's like that, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, all the drawings, especially they're kind of realistic. So it's not easy doing them. You know, I'm trying to keep the quality level really high all throughout, and, but I'm really enjoying it even though it's hard. So I definitely want to do more of it. I love pictures. I love the fact I've been doing children's books, which are, they're books with pictures, but it's so great to be doing things that are adult and I don't have to worry about having naked people or strangeness or darkness in them because that's part of me. When you're working on a children's book, sometimes you have to kind of put a damper on that. So I'm really enjoying this. Well, I'm enjoying the book tremendously, and uh, I wish you all the success with it. And I'll let you get back to work so now you got a deadline looming. So... Thank you so much. I'm going right back to work and make some more coffee. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I thought your questions were really great. Well, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Wasn't that a great conversation with Cynthia? Well, I have another guest on the show next week, and I'm really looking forward to that one as well. Christian Carnouche is talking about his Kickstarter book, The Resurrected. So why am I having someone on talking about a Kickstarter? I don't do a whole lot of those. Occasionally I do some. This one, I really wanted to have on the show. Christian has a fantastic story to tell. And his book also looks into the treatment of the Aborigines in Australia. Christian is from Australia originally. And he talks about their conquest by the British when they invaded Australia. And it is part of the foundation of the book, The Resurrected. And we also talk about his process of writing and the importance of having a controlling idea. What is that? Well, he talks about that. In fact, someone that helped him very much with his book to get it all together is editor Erica Schultz, who also works in comics. And I've interviewed on my show as well. So it's great to have someone on the show who was working with a former guest on the show. And Erica is fantastic. She's a great editor, great writer. So once I heard that she had some involvement in putting together the book, I was in. And Christian, as I said, is a fascinating guest. Not only his day job, which he'll talk about a bit. He can't get into it too much, but he will reveal some things to us about it, just enough so we have some understanding of it. I'll just tease it with that. And then we'll get into the book and into the writing process and how you put a book together properly. I think for those of you who are writers and comic book illustrators and working in comics will really enjoy this. So don't miss it. Please join me next Thursday. And I promise I am working on that contest coming up. But I can tell you this now, I have sorted out that the way to enter the contest will be based on something I ask about content on the podcast. So listen carefully, subscribe, and something that I mention on the show or a guest will be part of the contest. That'll be a question you will have to answer to enter into the contest. More details in the weeks ahead. Thank you for joining me for Creator Talks this week. The show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, and also on Amazon Echo and Dot devices. Just say, Alexa, play podcast Creator Talks to hear the latest episode. In addition, you can listen to the show and follow it through Podbean. 
Your feedback is greatly appreciated, so please rate and review on iTunes if you like the show or an episode that you heard. Your ratings and reviews go a long way to helping the show, and I can't thank you enough for taking a bit of time to do that. For your convenience, in the show notes of each podcast, I have a link to my iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and see the entire list of shows available. If you haven't heard them all, take a look through. There are living legends and -and up-and-coming comic creators. Tell family and friends who like comics and comic book creators about the show. And to subscribe. The content is free. Just as valued are your comments and feedback, you can reach me through Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. You can also reach out to me by email. You can find that at my website, creatortalks.com. At the website, you will also find blog posts, reviews of books that I have read that you might want to read too, my catalog of podcasts, and videos and other written articles on the website, creatortalks.com. A hearty thank you to all my guests. It is an honor and a privilege for you to make time to be on the show and talk to me about your work. It is your knowledge and insight into the creative process that makes the show so unique. My thanks also goes out to my family who makes this show possible, especially my executive co-producer, Mrs. Calloway. I'll be back each and every Thursday with a new interview. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.